welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we talk to students, educators, and thought leaders who are innovators and creatives in education. I'm your host, Tanya Sheckley. Thanks for joining us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast. I have a special show today. I am here with Scarlett Lewis. She is a public speaker and author of Nurturing Healing Love, A Mother's Journey of Hope and Forgiveness, about her journey of love and forgiveness after the murder of her six-year-old son, Jesse, during the Sandy Hook Elementary School tragedy. She is founder and chief movement officer of the Jesse Lewis Choose Love Movement which offers no-cost, next-generation, lifespan, social, and emotional character development programming for schools, homes, communities, and businesses. The program includes emotional intelligence, mindfulness, growth mindset, positive psychology, neuroscience, and more. The formula they teach is a method to thoughtfully respond to any situation, circumstance, and interaction by choosing love and taking your personal power back. The goal is to create a world we want to live in, safe, peaceful, and loving. The programming is in all 50 states and has reached over 2 million children. Welcome, Scarlett. I'm so excited to talk with you. Thank you, Tanya. It's great to be here. We've been talking a little bit before we hit record, but I want to ask, tell us about how your son's death inspired you to start the Choose Love movement. Absolutely. I knew instinctively that what happened at Sandy Hook Elementary School to my son, Jesse, and to the 19 others and six educators on that day was preventable. I knew that hurt people hurt people. I I know that people aren't born mass murderers. They are cultivated into what they become. And I quit my job And I decided that I would be part of the solution to honor Jesse's life. And I, Jesse left a message on our kitchen chalkboard shortly before he died. He wrote three words, nurturing, healing, love. And those were really kind of my marching orders. I knew that if the shooter had been able to give and receive nurturing, healing, love, the tragedy would never have happened. And so I literally brought that message to education professionals. And I said, how do I get this into schools and as a priority? And so they did some research on the words. They found that they are in the definition of compassion across all cultures. And when you break down the words, it comprises a powerful formula for thoughtfully responding with love. And I learned about social and emotional learning and essential life skills, growth mindset, mindfulness, post-traumatic growth, positive psychology, all of these incredible sciences. And I went to went back to the curriculum director at Sandy Hook and I said, um, you know, did you know about these things? And she said, yeah, of course. And I said, well, what happened? And she said, we spent so much money on this program 
that we couldn't afford to train the teachers, so it never got out of the box. Those are exact words. And I thought, this is so important. This would have saved my son's life. I'm going to go to the drawing board. I'm going to create a program that distills really the best of the best that's available for our kids that is evidence-based. And I'm going to offer it at no cost because this is just something that every child should have, should have access to. We know that this is the direct path to flourishing. So I went to the drawing board and and that's really how I did that and, and continued to do that nine years later. That's incredible. It really is. And you, you launched it as a nonprofit organization. You know, you've talked a little bit about how the sciences that it's based on, but how is it really different from other social emotional character development programs? And I guess I'm also out of my own curiosity, you know, what were you doing before this? You said you quit your job. What were you doing that kind of led you into this or gave you the skills and tools and experience to really do this research and create this program? Well, that's a great question because I was a single mom. So I did a little bit of everything. I've had a really kind of very interesting career history that culminated in me being an executive assistant to a CEO at the time of the shooting. And I realized I had to do my part in creating the world that I wanted to live in and safe schools as well. And so I really didn't have training in leadership or in in nonprofits. I didn't know what I was doing, but I had incredible people that in the beginning volunteered and believed in what I was trying to create. And so this, this initial group of education professionals came together varied from educators to school counselors to early childhood development specialists to doctoral professors to psychologists, psychiatrists, just this really incredible group that all offered their input. And we looked at what was out there. And, you know, initially I thought, well, I need to create something. This is so powerful that obviously all schools have it. So I'm going to fill in the gaps because Sandy Hook must be a gap school. It must be some school that uh, for some reason, because, you know, this community has plenty of money, but we evidently didn't have enough or we didn't prioritize training our teachers. So I want to help other communities like Sandy Hook that, that may not have the funding for it. So I will fill in the gaps, but then come to find that less than 10% of schools were teaching what I call and what are called essential life skills to kids and prioritizing them. And so literally what I, what I started out by doing as like a filler, as a, as a gap program actually became a program that, that was desperately needed. And, um, it's different because, uh, first of all, it's the only program that is a lifespan program. So we literally start with a, we call it an extension program, but prenatally, we have an infant toddler program. We have pre-K through 12th grade, all scaffolded up. We have a corresponding program for the home. We have a community program. So no other program has all of that. And I also looked at what the other programs were offering. We surveyed teachers, like, you know, why even, even with the school's 
that had the program and the training, it still wasn't being prioritized. And we asked the educators who are ultimately the ones that teach it and the administrators, like, why isn't this happening? And we took that data and created this program that is really very educator friendly. In fact, we had educators create the program, the ones that were going to be teaching it. And we included the best of the best of of the research that shows what actually works, what is significant, what is long-term, and we created it in a way that it would be just as beneficial for the educator. So uh, initially, it was really important to me that the educator not have to go through extensive training because, of course, that was a block for Jesse. So we created this program literally with the ability of the educator to learn alongside and practice these essential life skills right alongside and with the kids. And that's one of my favorite feedbacks that I get. Like I was at a school the other day and my very first educator, remember, it takes courage for an educator to step up and say, hey, this is a new program. I'm going to implement it. And there was one that kept writing me saying, when is this going to be done? And, and I would say, oh, I'm sorry, three more weeks, but I promise it'll be done and it'll be worth your while. So he implemented it in a school in Norwalk, Connecticut. And that was six years ago. He recently just moved to a new district, brought the program with him and invited me to come speak to the teachers. And he introduced me by saying this, I have been an administrator and an educator for 53 years. He said, I've done it all. I've taught every single SEL program that there is out there. This is my favorite. This is the best of the best because he said, because it helps me. He said, because I practice these skills because I bring them home with me and I practice them at home and in every aspect of my life. And that's exactly what I wanted. That made me so happy. That's so important. I know as we launched our school and looking at how to launch a social emotional program, because it's a core of what we do in helping students to understand themselves and become self-aware and self-regulate and understand Mm -hmm. how, you know, their emotions affect the people around them and all of those, those traits. And originally we would have a social emotional teacher come in and she would come in and she would do her lesson and it was great. And the kids loved it. And I think they gained a lot from that hour. But we didn't see that trickling into the culture of the school and we didn't right. see the language and the change and, you know, the vocabulary being used throughout the school day and throughout the school week. And so when we shifted that into something where we do the training and you know, we do ongoing professional development with our educators now in social, emotional and executive functioning and, you know, all these things that we want our kids to gain And then our educators have the training, they have the knowledge and they can implement it. They can use the vocabulary, they can trickle it into the school day. So it it becomes interwoven in the culture of everything we do, not this separate lesson and separate thing that we, you know, want to spend money on and prioritize, but never really know how to get it in the classroom, which I think is part of the block. And it sounds like your program has really worked to take that away to help the educators build their own social emotional development. Which, of course, as as adults, we need to have to be able to model and share and teach our children and our students. And so that that's really important. It's so important. It's not a program you take off the shelf and open up and teach and then put away. It's really a practice. It's a way of being. 
that we have to be mindful of every day, all day long. I need to be reminded. And I talk about this all day long. I need to be mindful of how I respond in certain situations. And I need to call on my tools every single day, absolutely all day long. And, you know, the argument against it is that, well, we teach these skills and tools at home and a school is for academics. And in reality, yes, absolutely. We teach the skills and tools to the best of our abilities at home for sure. But I can tell you that I was 44 years old when Jesse was murdered and I started my research into how that could have been prevented and came upon these essential life skills and realized very quickly, I don't have a lot of these. I have some of them, but I don't have a lot of them. It's because my parents don't have them. They couldn't give me what they didn't have and definitely didn't learn them in school or at college. And so I grew up to be an adult without them. And there's no shame in that at all. I've learned them as an adult by helping create this program. And my life is exponentially better. So I think that it's something we have to change the way that we think about these essential life skills. Educators that, that did our program, the Choose Love Movement, they came to me at the end of the first year because every year we up grade it and we add in suggestions from the educators that are out there actually teaching it. There's new science that comes up every year. So we include that. And these this group asked to speak to me. They said, um, we really want you to change the name because initially it was Choose Love Enrichment Program. They said, we really would like for you to change it to Choose Love Lifestyle. And I said, why is that? And they said, because it is like a lifestyle. You live, breathe, eat, sleep, you use this in every aspect of your life. And so, you know, this is the change. Well, I had already trademarked the other one, but now it's changed anyway. So, but I think that that's a really important consideration because this is for everyone. Everyone can benefit from this. And everything that you said, the self-awareness piece, the emotional management piece, the ability to think about what you think about, the mindfulness piece, and to you know, call yourself out if you are blaming too much or assuming responsibility outside yourself and bringing that back in so that you reduce anxiety. And, you know, so much of the suffering that we see now that I see traveling around can be reduced and even prevented by teaching this in schools. It's not something that I mean, like you said, we got whatever our parents knew when they mm -hmm. don't know everything. Right. Um, which now that we're parents, we know that they don't know everything. <laughs> <laughs> right. I was a kid. I thought my mom knew everything. We're all kind of lacking and we all have those holes. And part of it is, you know, how do we model lifelong learning? And when we can do that in the classroom and as educators learn new things alongside our students, that yeah. makes learning exciting for everyone. And it's not something that we teach in teacher training programs either. Like this isn't something that any of us get anywhere in school. Right. And part of what we talk about with our school, with UP Academy, is that we have the ability to build little people. And that, you know, starts from, for us, from kindergarten when they're five years old. And it's not just the academics, but it's really how do the academics fit into life? 
And in order to be able to see those connections and fit it into life, you have to build this social emotional capacity and maturity and intelligence. Mm -hmm. And so the two need to be taught hand in hand, you know, as they grow so that we have engineers who have an understanding of social emotional aspects so that they can build empathetic artificial intelligence, you know, on the higher end to stretch it out. But these are our students who are going to be making decisions for the planet, for the climate, for intelligence systems, and they need to have all of this knowledge and they need to really build all of these skills so that they can be the best people they can be when they go into the world. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. And then, you know, if you think about what we are seeing now in the media and the other end of that which is school shootings. These are the kids that don't have those skills and tools. They don't have a sense of belonging. They are isolated um, for the most part, and they absolutely lack that emotional management. If you look at the pathway to violence that is used by the departments of Homeland Security, usually a shooting will start with a grievance and end in an attack. And, you know, you talked about focusing on these essential life skills impacts a culture. Well, you know, we've been focusing on the attack end with all the hardening of schools. And yes, that's important, but you're not going to solve the problem until you address the culture of the school, the culture end of the school and schools where the educators and the children have these essential life skills, they can manage, even if a grievance happens and and it will happen less frequently, even if it happens, they can manage that grievance before it escalates into an attack. So schools that have and prioritize these essential life skills are the safest schools as well. And I think we're seeing more of that. We're seeing exponentially more of that now coming out of the pandemic. After so many of us have been isolated, we've been in different places, we've had different access to different things. Have you seen a change in a demand for your program or have you created different resources to help students working through some of the fear and anxiety that they have you know, around the pandemic, around illness, around going back to school, around being around humans again? You know, I would imagine that that plays in closely with the program that you currently have. Oh, it it absolutely does. And we, in fact, during the shutdown, we upgraded all of our programming and created a module called Choosing Love in Our Brave New World, specifically designed to meet educators and kids where they are right now. You know, if you think about how trauma is processed in the brain Um, It goes through a filter first, and this is for all of us. This is for everybody listening. We all have a trauma filter, and we need to be able to self-regulate first, and then we get to the relational part of our brain. And only after we've gone through those two parts do we get to the prefrontal cortex, where logic and reasoning reside. It's where we learn. And so this program literally helps kids um, self-regulate and get to that place where they can be present and learn. And then going into programming that has been updated. This is a new world that we're living in. I've been calling it Brave New World. That's why the 
program is called Brave New World. But literally it is. I mean, we have different terminology. We have different fears uh, now than we did. And anxiety is through the roof because of it. And so it's more focused on giving kids skills and tools to manage that anxiety. We were really kind of heavy on uh, post-traumatic growth when we started. And that was a term that most people had never heard of. But in my own healing, I had researched that. And that is where we grow through difficulty. And so in the programming, I wanted to give kids the understanding that you, you know, you will face difficulty, roadblocks, challenges, pain as well. I mean, pain is an immutable force in our lives. We're, we're all going to face it. We don't want our kids to, but they will at some point. And so they must have, we must equip them with coping skills to be able to learn from, grow through, be strengthened by that difficulty. And then the next step is to take that wisdom and use it to help other people. I mean, that's, um, you know, what you were talking about with the, with the young people that you're developing. And I really think that that's the key to why we're here. Yeah. You talk about, you know, how your brain changes during trauma and, you know, we have kids that are coming back to a new world and things are different. They're also coming back with different brains. When I think back to our tragedy, and we were talking a little before we hit record, and I think many of my listeners know this part of my story, but we lost our six-year-old daughter in 2016. And knowing what I went through from that trauma, like my brain and my neurology completely changed and completely shifted. Mm -hmm. And there are things, and it's never gone back the same. Like I've learned to live with the new brain that I now have. But going through a trauma like that and going through a trauma like so many of us had, so many people have lost someone in COVID. And even if it wasn't a person or a family member, like we've lost other things and we've dealt with the small traumas that happen every day now. Absolutely. So our brains are different and we're walking back into schools and back into businesses and into our jobs with a different set of tools than we had when we left. And so understanding yeah, how to work with that and like you said, how to create post-traumatic growth. How do you then move forward? How do you work with your new brain? How do you work with your new neurology and still move forward? And you know, it's kind of interesting because when you research post-traumatic growth as opposed to PTSD, which everyone's heard of, post-traumatic stress disorder, the majority of us experience post-traumatic growth. That's when we strengthen relationships, when we find new opportunities, we learn those new tools, we have a new perspective on life and different things. So the majority of us experience that. We don't realize it. We're not aware of it. And therefore, we can't really max out those tools because we're just not aware that we've even grown. And uh, that is much more prevalent, though, than the PTSD. And I think that that's kind of a reflection of the way that we think anyway. I mean, we all have a negativity bias. We focus on the negative. The majority of our thoughts every day are negative and repetitive. And what's going on in our world right now is, uh, you know, just fuels that fire of, of negativity. Our brains just want to keep us safe. So we are looking for 
uh, all the information we can get on COVID so that we can stay safe, what we need to know, where we can go, what the new rules are. And I think that that has created, unfortunately, this side effect of tremendous anxiety, burgeoning anxiety, and anxiety that is untreated can lead to all sorts of mental health issues, physically, mentally, emotionally. And so it's really important that, and and a lot of this is awareness, that we're aware, we think about what we think about, and uh, we give strategies for being able to shift the focus of your lens from this negativity, this frustration, anxiety, fear. And we use gratitude in that. So I'm now going into our formula, but that was my next question. Tell us more about the formula. Like, how do we take that personal power back? <laughs> okay, perfect. All right, let's just do it. Um, so I started a little out of order, but we can only think one thought at a time. So we can only think a lower energy thought or a grateful thought. So we teach our kids and our big kids to focus on gratitude. Think of something that you're grateful for. And there's always something to be grateful for doesn't have to be a big thing, can be a little thing. And that changes your focus, which uh, it strengthens your brain. The first character value is courage. And courage is, science tells us, like a muscle. We can practice it to strengthen it. And we use courage every single day. And sometimes don't even realize it, like getting out of bed and putting your best foot forward when you don't feel like it, telling the truth, being kind when someone's not being kind to you, being vulnerable, being your authentic self, facing your fear and difficulty rather than resisting and avoiding or even numbing yourself. That's all courage. And I have to talk about Jesse's courage when I talk about courage. He actually stood up to the shooter that came into his first grade classroom and saved nine of his classmates' lives before losing his own. And I found that out very shortly after the tragedy. And I thought to myself, you know, if my six-year-old son could do that, save nine lives, then certainly I can have the courage to quit my job and to be part of the solution for the rest of my life, because this didn't have to happen. And we know what the right things to do are. We know, we know the pathway to flourishing. And uh, Tanya, you're on it in your school, which is just tremendous. I, as a parent, didn't know <laughs> any of this. I, I, I just wasn't aware. I, I thought, you know, that the schools did their part. I went to work and I supported my kids. But come to find out that this is an essential part of our learning, of our children's learning in school, and it creates safe schools. And this is mandatory. I mean, this is something that all schools have to have and not just on paper as a box that's checked off, but they have to embrace it and prioritize it. And I think that the silver lining that's come out of COVID is that they're realizing it finally. I mean, the, the vernacular has been in the education system for decades, but I think they're realizing as the kids are coming back with the different brains that they, this is the only way that they can learn and then even catch up from the lost learning. So we've got courage, 
and the courage that we practice and that we can strengthen and that it takes to do all of the other character values. So we've got gratitude and it definitely takes courage to be grateful when things aren't going your way. Forgiveness is the next character value and uh, forgiveness has been the most important part of my healing journey. The ability to forgive the shooter. Otherwise, uh, people are, you know, people say to me, I can't believe that you could or even would do that. And that's because we think that forgiveness is a gift that we give someone that hurt us, that's undeserving. When in reality, decades of research show that the act of forgiveness is a gift that you give yourself. And Ultimately, it's the gift of freedom. It's the gift of taking your personal power back, of releasing the hurt and anger and and, uh, blame. And I liken it to having been tied by or connected at least by an umbilical cord that ran out of my side into the side of the shooter and all my personal power drained out of me in the form of anger. And it flowed through the cord into the shooter. It connected me with him. I was giving him power over my thoughts. Every time I was angry, every time I was giving power to him, even though he was dead, it didn't matter. I was giving him power over my thoughts that impact how I felt, that then impacted how I showed up in my relationships and how I behaved. And forgiveness to me was a big set of scissors and a choice. I decided to forgive. I cut that cord that attached me to pain and all my power ran back into me and it felt really good. Forgiveness starts with a choice and then it becomes a process. So it is one that I do again and again. You know, I'll have Jesse's birthday come up and I'll feel that flash of anger and I forgive again because I want to, first of all, model for my son. I don't want him to be controlled by that anger. I want him to live a life that's peaceful and that's uh, full of personal power. And the only way that we can get there is through forgiveness. So uh, it's funny because people think, and they said to me in the beginning, oh my gosh, forgiveness is so complicated. You can't teach that to kids. But I just have to share a little experience that I've had. And then we'll talk about the bus tour, our community. We have a community portion of the program, but this bus tour is an extension of that, the Choose Love bus tour. But I've been on this bus tour and making stops at schools, at at stadiums, uh, all different places. And it's giving an experiential experience to the formula. So we have four tables and the kids and their parents and educators will come through each of the stations and they'll get to practice one of the character values in the formula. So I've manned the forgiveness table a couple of times and to see these kindergartners and first graders, for example, come through and I will say, has anybody ever hurt you, hurt your feelings? And they all know exactly what I'm talking about. Yes. And then I'll say, have you ever hurt anybody's feelings? And of course, you see eyes darting. They're thinking about it. And then a lot of times I get no, (laughs) but they know what I'm talking about. And I'll say, all right, well, you have a little piece of paper in front of you. Draw a picture, if you can't write or write, a scenario where your feelings got hurt. Oh my gosh, Tanya. I mean, this just the detailed pictures that I get. And then what I didn't anticipate was they wanted to tell me about them. This is when my brother grabbed me by the collar and kicked my leg and pushed me over because he wanted my toy, you know, that type of thing. And uh, and I said, yeah, that hurt your feelings, right? 
yes. And you see it on their face. And, and then you say, well, well, let's practice forgiveness. Let's take that piece of paper. Let's wad it up, crumple it up, crumple it up, crumple it up. And oh my gosh, I mean, I would walk over to the table. Oh, tearing that paper up with red face, you know, and there's a lot of, a lot of pain, a lot of discomfort in, in little kids. I, I was shocked. And then uh, they would throw it away in a basket labeled self because you forgive yourself or others because you're forgiving others. And they would slam dunk those crumpled sheets up in there and walk away. And I would say, how does that feel? How does that feel inside? Does it feel good? And, and a lot of them would look at me and say, better, <laughs> which is fantastic because there's all that pain in them and we're giving them a tool to release it. It's like a release valve. And I think about, gosh, what happens when those kids at such young ages carry that pain with them and they have no way of releasing it? And so it, it makes it a little bit more obvious to us how kids grow up to be so rageful and vengeful. So then the forgiveness, it takes courage to forgive when someone who hurts you isn't sorry, doesn't care, may not even know, or to forgive yourself. That's such an important part of it. And then the fourth character value is compassion in action. And that is the identifying of a need and then actively doing something to help ease that need. And the amazing thing, there's so much science behind each one of these character values. And it is in the action component that all of the nurturing, healing love that you give out, you get back. It feels good. It strengthens you. It strengthens your immune system. It elongates your life. I mean, all of these character values have these incredible benefits for practicing them. And so at that table, we had them decorate these little kindness coins and they would go out and, and give these coins to people that looked like they needed them. And it was beautiful because at the courage table, we had first responders, we had the fire department, we had the police department, we had a detective, we had state troopers, and they would do courage poses, brave poses with the kids and brave breaths. And uh, the kids would run from the compassion and action table to back to the courage table to give these first responders these coins. And when I saw them at the end of the day, they literally had tears in their eyes and they came up with these handfuls of coins and showed me and, uh, and they appreciated it so much. But that is the formula. When you've had the courage to be grateful, even when things in life aren't going your way, the courage to forgive, even if the person who hurt you isn't sorry, doesn't care, doesn't know, or the courage to forgive yourself, let that pain go. And the courage to step outside of your own busyness and distraction, even your own pain and suffering to help somebody else. You, you've chosen love. You've taken your personal power back and you've made the world a better place. Wow, Scarlett. I have so much respect for what you have created and what you have built from what was such a terrible personal and community-wide tragedy. It's been so healing for me. I think that we undervalue the compassion and action component of healing. And so everything that I do all day long, people will comment and say, wow, you're talking about this stuff all day long and you're sharing what happened to Jesse and you're telling the story. Isn't that hard? Doesn't that like re-traumatize you? And my response is, well, based on the science and also my own experience, no, it strengthens me. I'm practicing compassion in action. I'm taking the wisdom that I've learned and I'm 
using it to help other people. And, and while I do that, it helps me. That is almost one of the keys. It is the key to life, the key to a, a happy, flourishing, loving, giving, grateful life is taking that wisdom that you learned and using it to help other people. It's not easy. It takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of strength and it takes a lot of honestly daily fortitude. And I know like as I talk about my story, I feel the same way and I feel the same things, but I also know that every time I do and every time I share, it wipes me out for a little while and I need to like go back and re-energize and recoup because I feel like it's giving so much of yourself all the time. And maybe it's because I'm an introvert too, but then I've got to go back and find ways to recharge so I can continue to give and share and grow that way. Well, that's interesting because I'm an extrovert and it's the same for me. I mean, I, I had some tears before this podcast when we were talking about Eliza and I, I find myself kind of, you know, being energized and then feeling sad. Jesse's school bus will drive by, you know, and I'll have a wave of sadness as I watch the kids get off the bus, knowing I would be watching Jesse get off the bus and I'm not. So I, I go there. I don't uh, resist it. I allow myself to go there. I shed the tears. I've got my paper towel here because I couldn't find tissues. <laughs> uh, and it's, they're usually around here. I probably have gone through a box and that's okay. It's, it's that self-awareness piece. It's it's feeling what you feel. And when you feel, you feel the surge, you feel the energy, and then you feel the depletion as well. And then it's taking care of yourself. It's realizing that. It's not forcing yourself through it. And I think that's when you get overwhelmed, but it's really taking care of this body that you have. And, and really this whole experience has made me so loving and kind to my own body and so grateful. I, I look at myself and, and it's so interesting because I it's totally different than the way that I used to look at myself. I was so critical and I was so critical of almost every aspect of myself, my job, my looks, my weight, the way I was as a parent, you know, just, just the way I showed up in my relationships and all of this. And now I look at myself physically, mentally, and emotionally. And I think, wow, you have been with me, mind and body, through the hardest stuff. And you were always there for me. You, you got me through that. I wake up every morning. You continue to work for me even when I have abused you. I have not always been kind to you. I haven't always put you first. And I've criticized you so much, yet you still were there for me. I love you so much. And I think it's important that we are able to say we love ourselves and not in an egotistical way, but in, a, in an appreciating way. That's where our whole programming starts is loving, accepting, and appreciating ourselves because we really can't do that for others until we do that with ourselves. And it's where we start. That started for us definitely having a daughter with disabilities. Mm -hmm. Did that and watching my other two children grow and suddenly watching like my daughter sit and stand and walk. And just the fact that I can walk around and how much easier my life is because of that, because I have that mobility and ability that so many of us take for granted. But being able to look at myself and being like, wow, 
Like, yeah, I've got a little cellulite on my tush that is not my favorite thing. Like, I've never really cared for my feet. Like, we all have those things, right? But they work and I can stand on my feet and my glutes help me to move and to squat and to lift and to do all of these incredible things that our bodies do that was so easy to take for granted until I had a child who couldn't do all of those things. Yes. And so I, I understand what you're saying and thank you for that reminder of self-appreciation and self-care and self-love for all of us and for wherever we are in life. We're so strong. Yes, we, we can be. And I think that that's definitely something that I've learned from losing a child that I was present with my kids. I tell the story where uh, there was one day and I worked long hours. I had a long commute. My kids went to daycare before and after school. And uh, I, I was counting up the amount of hours I spent at work and at home during the week. And I realized I spend more time at work than I do with my kids. I came home. I literally unplugged the TV, dropped it off at Goodwill. And from that day forward, we read in bed every single night. We played board games. I still have all the board games that Jesse and I played. We talked around the table. We played card games. We played the memory game. Jesse beat me in memory card, the memory card game every single time. In fact, like at four years old, he was giving me hints where the cards were. So I was present. I practiced being present with my kids, really appreciating them, really enjoying every moment that I had because I felt like even at that time, I didn't have enough time. And so that is the way to live your life with the fewest regrets is to be present with the ones that you love. And it makes me realize, you know, I'm, I'm very aware of that. And, you know, when I, I go out, I go to dinner at a restaurant and I see so many times parents on their devices, on their phones, and then having given kids the iPads, even with headphones. I realize some kids use noise reducing headphones, but this is so that they can better hear their movie over dinner. And I literally just want to say, ah, oh, you have live children. You can talk to them. You can ask them how their day was. I mean, when a parent, you know, the got to versus the have to, that's one of the gratitude practices. Parents say to me, oh, they complain. I have to take multiple kids to multiple sporting events. I've got to do this huge mound of dirty, stinky laundry for my boys. And it's like, I translate that as you get to take multiple kids to multiple sporting events, you get to then go home and wash this huge pile of smelly laundry from multiple boys. Like that just sounds like heaven to me. And so I think that it's really important as parents when we're trying to model all of this and, and we're only human, but really important that we realize that we're here for a short while and we don't know how long. And our kids are as well. And so we just, as much as is humanly possible, cherish every moment, every chore that is associated with having children. <laughs> every chore is, is a reminder of your purpose and gives meaning to your life. Like embrace it instead of going through life mindlessly doing what the narrative is, which is like, oh, this is annoying. I'd rather be doing this and just embrace. I try to do that and I fall down for sure. I get annoyed and frustrated, of course, but I go back to the formula and, uh, and I start with courage. 
And I think about Jesse and I think, wow, you know, I certainly can find the courage to put my best foot forward, to show up every day, to do everything that I can to get this nurturing, healing, love message out into the world. Okay, now I'm crying again, but it's your paper towel, (laughs) right? So how can people get in touch with you as they work towards choosing love as we're sharing your message of how to save the lives of so many other children around the world and definitely around our country? How can we get in touch with you? Yeah. You know what, Tanya, if I lived by you, my kids would be going to your school. I did not realize (laughs) the importance of being involved and asking the tough questions to schools. Like, what is your programming that you use? Is it a priority? How many hours per day do you focus on it? How many hours per week? It's so important. And so you can go to our website, chooselovemovement.org. And if you register, you have access to everything that we have. And we have a no cost. It's all no cost. So uh, this was really important to me because my son was literally priced out of the market of getting these essential life skills. And, And I realized how important they are to our entire lives, to our ability to flourish. We know this through decades of research. We know kids that get these skills and tools taught in school, get better grades and test scores, have higher attendance, higher graduation rates, less stress and anxiety, less behavioral issues. And then later in life, less substance abuse, less mental illness, less incarceration. I mean, we know what to do. And so, you know, introduce this program that's no cost, that's the most comprehensive program available and has this home component. Because uh, it's really important to back up those skills and tools that are taught at home in school and then vice versa. So you can start getting on and, and learning some of the vernacular that your kids are learning in school and practice these skills and tools. We have calendars that are one of the favorite things that you can hang up on your fridge and, and it gives you little things to practice every day to be mindful of, to help you have a better more meaningful and purpose-filled life. Everyone can benefit. And uh, then, you know, there, there are things for the community that the community can get involved as well. I mean, really, I think that it's really important that we realize that we're all in this together. <laughs> and uh, I love Rumi's quote where, where he said, we're all just walking each other home. And ultimately, that is the truth. We're all in this together. And so, you know, Loving and supporting one another is the way that we are going to create the world that we want to live in. And now is the time for this. So uh, ask the question to your school and introduce this to, I mean, it's gone in through teachers. It's gone in through administrators. It's gone in through counselors. It's gone in through parents. Anyway, doesn't matter. And we have other resources that can help the school literally hold their hand and walk them through and figure out what's best for their school culture. Fantastic. Chooselovemovement.org. Yes. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Scarlett. Thank you, Tanya. Thank you for listening to the Rebel Educator podcast. To learn more about us, visit rebeleducator.com where you can learn about our professional development opportunities for educators and students and see our project library. If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, check out our progressive, inclusive elementary school, Up Academy, at upacademysf.com. 
We'd like to say a special thank you to Atmosphere for use of their audio track, Miho. Thanks again for joining us, and we wish you well no matter where your educational journey may lead.